So before we get into the episode, folks, we want to give a trigger warning. We're going to be talking about sexual assault and rape and sexual violence in some detail in this episode. So if that um, doesn't work for you, heads up or take care of yourself. Do what you need. Thanks, y'all. Bienvenidos a Radio Menea, y'all. My name is Vero Flores. And I'm Miriam Suela Perez, and we are two Latinx friends with wildly different music tastes. Each week we bring you music from the Latinx artists that we love, and this week we are bringing you a whole episode on Menudo while I have a cold and sound weird. (laughs) (laughs) But I feel fine. She sounds worse than she feels, y'all, so don't be worried. That's right. Don't Um, worry about my labor conditions here. I'm good. (laughs) Yeah, and I I prepared this episode, so Vero's been resting. Um... So yeah, we're going to do a deep dive into Menudo, the probably most infamous Latino boy band of up to this point, I think. So um, the first song that we're listening to, we're going to do a little chronological situation because that's how I like to roll. So this is from their first album, 1977. This is the title track. It's called Los Fantasmas. Let's take another listen. So yeah, this is the this is the beginning of Menu though. What'd you think of this one, Vito? I was so surprised at first by this like a funky analog synthesizer that I heard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, whoa! Like not what I was expecting. I don't know what I was expecting necessarily. I feel like I know Menudo like conceptually, like, and I remember. Um, at my cousin's house growing up, she had a Menudo poster of mm-hmm. like, I think the iteration with Ricky Martin in it. Okay. If I'm not mistaken, which was a little before later. my time, but yeah. like, um, and later than this, but also my mom, I feel like knew about Menudo and talked about Menudo, and she, like, would measure time with Menudos, mm. you know? Like, she'd be like, ah, más viejo que el Menudo de, like, you know, like, whatever person, you know? That's um, so interesting. Yeah, so, uh, but I don't think that I've heard too much of it in my life. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this definitely helped me get a lot more context for, for the history of Menudo. Because, yeah, it's like I knew of them. I knew Ricky Martin was in it. I knew that there was some controversy, and we're going to get a lot into that. Um, but one thing I didn't know, which I wonder if you know, is that actually the first place that Menudo got really popular was Venezuela, outside of PR. I did that not was, know that. Yeah, that was like their I did first... know that they were very popular in Venezuela. Yeah, yeah. So it makes sense that, like, you, you grew up with those contexts. Yeah, mm-hmm. it was the first first place in Latin America that they got really big was in Venezuela. And so there's a lot of discussion. So most of my information from this episode is coming from a documentary series on HBO um, called Menudo Forever Young. Definitely recommend it. It's really well done. Um, It's upsetting also, but it's really well done. 
Um, and so that's where I got all this context of the history of Menudo. And they interview um, people from the industry, music journalists, and um, former members of the group um, are all interviewed in the in the documentary. And so, um, yeah, Venezuela was like a big part of the success story of Menudo, which, you know, it makes sense in some ways around the proximity of the Caribbean and kind of you could see it as like an entry point to like this like Puerto Rican music then spreading across um, Latin America. I mean, it got really big all over Latin America. Um, but yeah, Venezuela was like the first first place that that happened. So that was really wow. interesting to me. So, okay. So the main character slash villain really i think of the menudo story is this guy named edgar edgardo diaz who is a puerto rican you know music mogul i guess at this point and so he was the mastermind behind menudo and he was inspired by a spanish group um that was also like a boy kids band called los pandillas and or uh, sorry no called la pandilla and they were a kids group from Spain, and he actually um, was a promoter of that group in, in Latin America. And so that inspired him to start Menudo. And what he realized, you know, if you think about it from a creative perspective, is that, like, there was kids music, like little kids music, and there was adult music, and there was nothing in between. And so Menudo mm. was really responsible for, I think, showing that you could have a lot of success when your target market is, like, teenagers and tweens, basically. Like, um, and and they were really... They were, they were wildly successful at different parts of their history. And so he's the person who started the group. He recruited all of the members. Um, he was the money person. He was the business person. He hired a bunch of family members to be in the business, and including like merchandising and all that stuff. It was like very much a family affair. Um, he did all the contracts with the record labels and the concert venues. And so everything came from him, through him, which... Um, you know, spoiler alert, there was a lot of exploitation, um, both financial and otherwise, mm -hmm. because of this model. And so one of the things that kind of like you just said, like what your mom was saying, one of the things that characterized Menudo is that it was a rotating cast of characters because once the, the boys got too old, like puberty, voice cracking, um, usually around 15 or 16, they would be removed from the group because of that. Um, and so right. and they had to be sort of boyish also. Yeah. They couldn't look too much like, yeah, it was men. an interesting, yeah, it was, yeah, it was like an interesting, I mean, I think it changed a little bit over time. Like in the later years, they were a little bit older looking, but, mm. but yeah, I mean, they were meant to be like nine to 15 and, um, and you can wow. hear in their voices in this, in yeah. this song, they're children. Sure. I think as the time went on, it seems like they, maybe because they were marketing, they were profiting off of sort of like the desirability of them as like heartthrobs to, to mm. teenagers, then they yes. were, you know, a little bit older or allowed to be a little bit older. But yeah, it was definitely like this, um, you know, very young adult, uh, audience. It's interesting to me, uh, this idea of like music for teenagers, thinking about it in the context of uh, when being a teenager as a life stage was invented, you know, it's like a 20th right. century phenomenon. I'm, I keep thinking of like, like the Beatles, right? Like yep. who rose yep. to fame sort of like in the 60s and the 70s and were so popular with young women and teens um this like sort of newly emerging category of person who you know was uh, not a child child in the same way that had traditionally been thought of it but like was still young and not like immediately like entering what like an adult family life would look like mm -hmm. and um 
it's interesting to think of like socially and politically the construction of the category of the teenager mm-hmm. and when um, we start marketing to them, like when mm-hmm. the, the teenager as like a powerful marketing category. Mm-hmm. And I think that now the teenager is like the marketing category, like not right. like obviously like people at all stages of their life get marketed to in capitalism, but um, there's so, especially teen girls, mm-hmm. um, we mm-hmm. underestimate the way that teen girls drive and shape culture and how much, um, capital seeks their dollars as a group of people. Right. Right. And that's, I think Menudo though really, um, was the, at the forefront of that and showing that there was, you could have a really successful, um, mm-hmm. media mm-hmm. empire just catering to that group of people. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think that, that that group of women becoming a market and then the, that group of boys becoming like a an item to consume, right? You yeah, know, it's commodity. like growing a commodity, right? Growing up, um, I don't know if this is before your time in the U.S., but there were these like magazines like um, Big Bopper and stuff. Do you remember this, Veto? They were kind of like teenage girl versions of like playboy <laughs> yeah i remember like bop where there was like jonathan taylor thomas uh-huh, and stuff. exactly like exactly. and like pictures of these like white boys with their uh-huh. floppy haircuts uh-huh yeah so this is like i feel like menudo was like the beginning of that of like these young boys as like um sexual objects really of particularly of like teenage girls and this consumption of of them as yeah like heartthrobs and yeah it's not like that that had never existed but I think this era demonstrates like a commitment to really capitalizing on that. And like you mentioned mm-hmm. the Beatles, which we'll talk later about Menudo in the U S like that was really the only corollary the people in the U S had to like what Menudo was, but Menudo was really not the Beatles. Like the Beatles were adults. Yeah. Like they were, they were much older than yes, these Menudo right. kids. Like it wasn't really a comparable phenomenon, but they had no other way to understand like the excitement, particularly on behalf of like these young women about mm-hmm. these like kids from Puerto Rico. And so, yeah. Um, so yeah. Fascinating. So let's take a listen to a song from their 1978 album called Laura. So, um, 
when Menudo started out, it was actually three brothers from one family and two from another. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, in some ways, maybe easier to manage because you were just dealing with two sets of parents instead of five, potentially. Yeah, um, yeah. And the, some version of the initial group lasted a, a longer than, like, future Menudos would. Um, mm. But I think in this song, you can already hear, like, it's a little more mature. They sound a little bit less like little boys and more like young men because they're singing about like a girl and so i feel like the theme is already getting like a little bit more mature which might sort of um reflect like what was happening with like the audience and like the sort of um fanaticism of like young teenage girls for menudo as like these heartthrobs yeah wow so interesting one of the things that the documentary talks about is that you know edgardo or somebody that was involved said that you know edgardo had learned from working with Los, um, with La Pandilla, the kids grew from Spain, that the parents were really difficult. Like they made things difficult because they wanted their kids in school. They wanted their, whatever, they had a lot of control. And oh so- Oh my God. In setting wanted, up- like men- education for yeah, their children. They wanted to like parent their children. And so like, yeah, they would only let them tour during vacations and whatever. And so when he set up Menudo, he tried really hard to um, really, take away pretty much all the parental rights of these kids in the contracts that he wrote so that he could have like basically them as like workers 24 7 that's pretty nefarious wild yeah that's really wild it's pretty bad so yeah so they pretty quickly they they started to bring tutors along with them on tour so they could be touring all the time and they were touring they're doing promotions they were doing radio so like i mentioned I think it was toward toward the end of the 70s that um, the group got really big in Venezuela, so they started touring there, and they showed some footage mm-hmm. of like them at a hotel in Venezuela, and the all these young women like trying to scale the hotel walls to like break into their room, like real like fanaticism, real kind of like crowd mentality stuff, like kind of frightening looking, honestly, the way that the like hysteria yeah. for these boys um, looked. So there were definitely a lot of issues around security and safety and. You know, the story by most of the people involved, pretty much everyone involved in the documentary was like, they were really negligent. Edgardo didn't care about these kids. He didn't care about their well-being. He cared about them as workers. And there was a lot of, um, at, at at the very least, negligence on behalf of like their emotional needs. Also their physical needs. They're like, like taking breaks to eat food and sleep. And it was just, it seemed like a really, um, intense and grueling experience for these boys. Mm, yeah, I mean, I can't imagine. It's so much work. I we were when we were talking about this episode a little bit before we started recording. I was just thinking about like, I don't know, like the moral and ethical qualms of making children labor in this way. Ooh. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty bad. It's pretty bad. It's really hard. It's hard to look back at this with anything other than like kind of horror honestly and concern about what these kids so it was 32 kids in all were put were came in and out of menudo because there was so much of that cycling that happened and some of it was about age and some of it was about like i don't like you anymore so like one there was a story of a parent of one of the menudo kids pretty early on and he would tour with the boys the dad would and so he would be like no they need a break no they need a rest no we have to stop no they need a meal and Edgardo didn't like that yeah. anymore. And so he kicked oh both the, the father and the son out of the group. You know, so it's like he had this like ultimate control and that and that feeling of expendability because it was the brand really, not the individuals that like made 
the success. And so they were all replaceable. And so that really, I think, contributed to just exploitation because he yeah. had like yeah. the upper hand. And, you know, they, they talked to some record executives and stuff that signed Menudo in those years. And they were like, we dealt with him and he dealt with the young people like the contracts were all there. The kids contracts were all with him, not with the record company. And so, you know, I think it's a convenient way to be like, we're not responsible, but like, that's also a fucking mess, you know? Um, and this, you know, the eighties, I think were like the peak of Menudo's popularity. And they, they were releasing two albums a year, which is like intense. Um, and then they were being toured all the time constantly. And yeah, a lot of the, the men who were members talk about being treated like adults by these managers, by Edgardo, by the people involved. And like, they were not adults, they were kids, you know, and they Mm -hmm. didn't have Mm -hmm. support or guidance really. But, um, yeah, in the eighties, they say that the earnings, Menudo's earnings from merchandise, from touring, from record contracts, from commercials was probably something like $20 million, which was huge in 1980s time. Yeah. And all of that went through Edgardo. And um, at the beginning, the the like original Menudo, some of the earlier guys had a percentage deal, which makes more sense. Like, okay, I'm your manager. You get 60%. I get 40% or something like that, right? Um but then Edgardo decided to start putting the newer members on salary instead of giving them a percentage, which just mm-hmm. meant more exploitation because they were just getting paid a flat fee and then he was taking all of everything else and they weren't getting any commission or royalties or anything. So wow. definitely like very clear economic exploitation on behalf of yeah. him. And a lot of the kids that he recruited um, as time went on were young, were poor kids from poor families in Puerto Rico. And so mm-hmm. then, you know, there's more opportunity for exploitation because these families relied on that income. Like the income was a lot for these families, even if it was a, yeah. nothing for what Menudo was making. And um, yeah, you're talking about families who are looking at his contract and being like, well, I can sign it and he can do this or I don't sign it and that's it, you know? So there wasn't a yeah. lot of like, there's no negotiating power if you're not that needed, you know? Yeah. So. So what did you learn about, like, the musical direction of the, you know, of the Menudos and how they might have shifted over time? Because the first song was like, I mean, the first song was a song about ghosts. And it seems very (laughs) much like in like a children's music sort of vein. Mm -hmm. But this song, Laura, feels much more like... A ballad. It was in 1978, right? Like, mm-hmm. it feels like, sonically, like that mm-hmm. time, like, sort of, like, Carpenter's vibes, mm-hmm. you know? So I'm curious what you learned about, like, what the concept was or musical direction or how they thought about the the music that they, they chose to do. Yeah, there wasn't, like, explicit discussion of that theme, but I think you can see over time, and we'll see as we listen to the music that like it's a lot of sort of adapting to the to the trends of that age and that era and so the sounds start to transform as over time that um like they had i don't think we have a song from this era but like in the late 80s they had like a like a rock moment oh. more of like a like a heavy like kind of hair band kind of moment um that didn't last very long and like you can see it in the aesthetics too like in the 80s all the boys have like these, like probably per- a lot of them have like permed, like mullets kind of like the really curly mm. look. And then in the late eighties, early nineties, everyone's got like long straight hair, you know, it's like, so watching the, um, their fashions also evolve over time. And, and there was definitely a move from like young boy sort of to more like 
you know, young man kind of like heartthrob vibes. But Edgardo refused to participate in the documentary because it's mostly about the allegations of abuse against him. And so I don't have anything about his vision. He really was the like person behind it. But I, for what it looks like to me, he was just trying to maximize their profitability and, and try to keep them successful over time as much as he could. Um, Interesting. So you don't um, feel like he had like a very, it was more of like a, his vision was more about a business proposition than it was an artistic one is what you're suggesting. Um, yeah, yeah, that's what I'm suggesting. I mean, there's no way to know. I don't know what's going on in his mind. And like, it's hard to see him in any positive light because of all the allegations of abuse against them. And we're going to get more into them, yeah, but, yeah. um, but yeah, that's, it seems like it was a business proposition. Everything he did was really to put money over and his particular personal success over everything else because, mm you know, everyone was treated. And I don't even know, like, you know, it's a good question. Like who wrote the music and who yeah, he brought yeah. in? He definitely had like a choreographer. He had a choreographer who named Hosello, who was there on and off and who would like do things with costuming. And you know, this, that was, a, they, I feel like Menudo kind of started that whole, like, you know, boy singing and dancing coordinated thing that then you see later in like new kids on the block and in sync and boys to men, you know, like it becomes a thing that that was, um, that was big for them. And the costumes are kind of hilarious. If you watch the documentary, just like watching the fashions over time. And there's a funny moment where one of the former members talks about like when they gave him like spandex to wear. And he was like, um, but it's going to show, you know, like, Todo me va, oh va ver, you know, and they're like, oh, whatever. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, but I, I'm, my guess is, yeah, that it's about money and it's about business. Um, and maybe also in a, if from a more nefarious place, like a way to, to create an opportunity to exploit these young people financially mm. and, and otherwise. So I do want to m- mention the fact that like, if you look at the boys over time, um, there are pretty much no black members of Menudo. Like there might be some members who have some like African ascendancy, but like everybody is like light skinned. Um, yeah. Yeah, they're definitely marketing a specific mm-hmm. kind of vision of mm-hmm. who is a th- heartthrob. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, um, I think that, yeah, you can't can't ignore that fact that clearly there's some, like, racism and colorism happening. And Edgardo himself is, like, a, a light-skinned man, too. So, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you know, not surprising, but you have to remember Puerto Rico is, like, an incredibly diverse place. And many of it is not does not show that diversity really to yeah. much extent. Yeah. Okay, let's listen to the next song, which is starting to be like their the height of their popularity. Um, this is a 1982 song called A Volar.
okay, we're starting to get somewhere where I'm recognizing some songs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think this was their first single. Um, at least based on the Wikipedia um, directory, this was the first song that was listed as a single released mm. in 82. But yeah, I recognize this one too. So I think this is like starting to get to the height of their popularity. Um, and yeah, a particular sound, right? A very different than the first two songs that we listened to. Um, maybe a little poppier. You know, there was one person that in the documentary that talked about how like Menudo really made a place for like Latin pop in mm. the sort of me the the musical landscape of latin america because before it was very like there were ballads and then there was like salsa um but there wasn't a lot of um room for pop music and menudo was definitely like a big um part of making pop a thing again i guess probably because it you create this audience of young people and they want to listen to something different than what their you know parents are listening to and so all of a sudden you get this this new market you know and i don't know that I wonder how many people have looked back at Menudo and taken them seriously from a musical perspective, like the questions you're asking. Because I think boy bands can get seen as like trivial or not that serious or, you know, just pandering to like young people, right? Like that they don't always get, I guess the way that, that young people get kind of um, treated in an ageist way, right? That the, what they're doing is not as serious. Or I as, specifically you know, though, like anything that is marketed towards young women is seen as particularly frivolous right so right um i find that um you know and this is a phenomenon that i'm just noticing right now it's very well documented that like media that is uh that t targeting young women um and teen girls specifically is always the media that is like most consistently seen as like frivolous like lacking in any artistic content and um there's a lot of ignoring how much um teen girls are tastemakers actually mm -hmm. for um cultural tastemakers in at least the way that culture is set up yeah. currently but it is often um undermined and any culture that that is like where teen girls are the target is often seen as just categorically stupid yeah no i think that's totally right i think that's totally right um so this era 82 they're doing a lot of touring in central and south america and if you remember kind of what was happening in Latin America in the 80s, it was a pretty intense time politically. Um, a lot of conflict, a lot of things happening militaristically in different places. And so they talk about in the documentary that they, that in 82, they went to El Salvador and did a concert in El Salvador. And that was like a very, very violent, volatile time in El Salvador. And um, there was kind of either this ignorance to the questions of safety or and just like he didn't care because there was a market for it. Um, and there's like a really poignant thing that one of the boys or men talk about um, who was in the group that they had all these guards protecting them at when they were there because there was so much violence happening in El Salvador. And they were just young guys like them who were military. They were part of like the either the paramilitary, or, you know, probably the paramilitary. Um, so they got kind of friendly with them because they were peers. Right. But they were the ones with the machine guns. And then at the end, you know, they're saying goodbye and the boys are kind of like sad the salvadorans and the and the manuda guys are like hey what's wrong and they're like well now after this like we're going back to the front lines like this was just like a little gig we got to protect you but now we're going back to the front lines of the war you know and so it's like right right like this is what these kids are dealing with and these are these like pop stars flying in so really intense and um 
yeah, just not a lot of concern for their safety because on top of the conflict happening, then there's also this like hysteria of these fans that are just like kind of uncontrollable it seems um and like there's a story about they landing in and the tarmac in lima peru and the tarmac was swarmed by fans so like they're in the airport on the on the freaking tarmac you know like so there was just um i think not that much you know they were they luckily nothing horrible ever happened to them in that way but um the the kids describe the guys describe a lot of like feeling really unsafe and worried about like how they were going to get off the stage safely and you know a lot of the places they were performing didn't have the infrastructure to deal with this kind of like crowd control you know and so mm-hmm. there was a lot of like fear for their safety mm-hmm. in that way you know so there's four parts of the documentary and i think it's the third part that gets much more into the allegations of like abuse um and leading up to that you know somebody in the documentary is like you know it's like the you know, the wolf watching over the chicken head, the chicken coop, you know, like it was that kind of thing. And that's, you know, saying in in Spanish. And so kind of foreshadowing a little bit of like what's to come, I think was already happening, but the allegations didn't come out until later in terms of, you know, the, the working conditions and stuff like that was being talked about, but the abuse allegations um, didn't come out until later. So let's listen to one of their first English language songs. So in the 80s, they started to try and break out into like the continental U.S. market at this point, like their success was really in Latin America. Um, And so they try to sort of make a crossover happen. They get signed by, you know, a U.S. um, recording company and they start to record in English. So let's take a listen to the 1988 track, You've Got Potential. definitely sounds like 1988 yeah yeah no you can hear the sound evolving with the time for sure um so you know it was interesting their their attempt to cross over into like the english language market in the u.s all the kids were puerto rican at this time in the group like based in pr born in pr so not all of them were bilingual and so they Mm -hmm. had to do a lot of like adapting to learn how to to sing in english yeah and then it posed a lot of challenges for media and things like that because they couldn't do interviews in English. They just weren't bilingual enough to do that. And so um, at this time, actually, the first member who was raised in the in the continental U.S. was brought in. His name is Robbie Rosa, and he's Puerto Rican but born and raised in the U.S. And so that was, I think, part of the attempt to be more palatable to the U.S. market, have more English, English language 
capacity. Um, and then some people also say that this shift, you know, uh, maybe 10 years later, there's no kids from the island anymore, and it's all kids from the U.S. And, um, oh, interesting. And they say that it was because, some people say it was because the Puerto Rican, like the community in Puerto Rico started to know more about like the abuses that um, mm-hmm. Edgardo was was carrying out. And so that reputation yeah. made it harder for him to recruit kids from Puerto Rico, which is like so upsetting to think about the way that that played out. Um, and so, so yeah, this is what, what's going on in this moment. They were never successful in the U.S. and never in the continental U.S. So they never took off. They never had the kind of success that people expected. And so... They got dropped by their label, RCA, at some point in this time. Um, and they really kind of never, yeah, they never made it big here. And it's interesting to think about, like, our bigger conversations about the Latin booms in the U.S. Um, they were just too early, I think, you know? Like, I think that the, the the market just wasn't there yet in the 80s for Spanish language. I mean, there were people, there were, like, Latina girls who were, like, really into this group in the U.S., but that market was just really small, I think, at that time. Whereas now we've talked about how immigration patterns and whatnot in the market looks really different. Um, yeah. Although it's interesting because there were the way that we talked about Latin booms in that episode, and we can link this episode in the show notes, y'all, if you haven't listened to it, um, but was about really like, you know, there's always been Latinx communities in the United States, whether because like they were here before it became the United States or because of migrations that have been happening for a long time. But like in the 1950s, the first thing that we like, you know, think of like as a Latin boom with like the um, obsession with like the dance craze around like cha-cha mm-hmm. and mambo, you know, like that mm-hmm. was way before this. And like the... It, it's only ever seen as profitable when white audiences yeah. are yeah. into it. Right. Yeah. 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 Cause I mean, they, they, they had some incredible turnouts, particularly in New York city for their concerts. Um, that and like a lot of sense. Yeah. yeah the huge Puerto right. Rican migration. Exactly. Yeah. And times square was like flooded with like girls, you know, and everyone's like, what is this going on? You know, but, but you're right that the market, it the well, the market wasn't there outside of those groups and those groups themselves were, I think, numbers wise at some point you know as we've talked about like into the you know early 2000s like the demographics have shifted such that it's harder to ignore that like the latino market as a market in and of itself because mm-hmm. of like the numbers there and the sales and stuff but you know they tried like they were uh they presented an award at the Grammys, so they couldn't get them to like they couldn't be performers at the Grammys, but they they presented an award. It actually was an award to to Michael Jackson. Interesting. So Ricky Martin joined in '84, um, and I think I was telling you that I, I read that he had to he actually had to audition like three times before he was accepted because he was so short and so small, like pre-puberty, because now he's like six feet tall, but. Um, and I guess right. the other thing the documentary said is that he wasn't actually that talented, like his singing and dancing wasn't that good, but he had this like charisma and this like boyish good looks that I think really, um, mm. were what convinced them to bring him on. And then he became kind of a star, even though like his talent wasn't there in the same way, but I think he's developed it obviously. Like I think he is a talented singer and dancer. So, you know, I've been alluding to like these sort of bigger abuse allegations and those are, um, allegations of sexual abuse and like rape and sexual assault, like very, upsetting like systemic issues clearly in the group definitely involving Edgardo definitely involving other people that were part of the management um, and I think it's interesting to look at you know which which boys were recruited 
And there are, so there's one story of a boy who's like the only one who didn't have to audition um, for the group. And they say that that was because um, Edgardo was in love with him. And they actually had a relation. Like he basically oh brought God. him on and like um, had a, you know, was sexually assaulting him. You can't call it a relationship when he's a, t- a young boy, like a, t- you know, preteen right, boy. Right. Um, so to that. Right. But yeah. Exactly. So there were definitely, there were definitely things like that going on. So another thing I noticed that, you know, the 32 guys who were in this group, but um, a good number of them, I don't know how many, but a, a number of the ones who talked on the documentary are gay. And we know that Ricky Martin is gay. And then there's a couple of others. Mm-hmm. And so I, it also makes me wonder if he was recruiting um, boys specifically that he thought might be gay to make them more mm-hmm. susceptible to um, not that, you know, boys who are sexually assaulted by men are not all gay, but I think there is sometimes this sense of like, that there's a more vulnerability there that they can, you know, maybe take advantage of that to keep them from yeah. saying anything yeah. because they're worried about being seen as gay. Yeah. So, um, Ricky Martin has never said anything about any of the allegations against Menudo. though. He's never spoken about it publicly. So we have no idea what his experience was, but it seems like this was just a really systemic issue that, on top of like the working conditions and like the lack of emotional support, the lack of like care for them as people. Then there was also, um, this culture of, of kind of, um, inappropriate intimacy. And then in some cases of assault and abuse. Yeah. That's so sad. That's no. so sad. And like, you know, sadly feels a little unsurprising. I know, you know, it just, I don't know. We don't treat children well in our society, especially like, you know, when for some reason children are entering the workforce. Um, child labor is just a um, an area really rife for abuse because children are so vulnerable. Yeah. And when there's like an environment where there's unchecked authority by one person. And I think that's the thing. I It's like I knew I'd heard rumors, but I had no idea how bad it was. And it was really upsetting to watch the documentary and realize that it was like, you know, he basically created what seems like a culture that allowed children to be systemically abused, groomed, abused, like, you know, 32 kids overall. Like, I can imagine how many of them, um, most of them probably experienced some level of this. And so... And then, you know, that it wasn't just him, it was also other people in his group and just like that, yeah, you create a culture that where this is the norm, um, just, just feels super upsetting. And then, you know, these allegations, it took a little while, but there were times when people came, became public about, um, at first it was like the workplace stuff. It was like long hours, like bad pay, whatever. And then, um, and then the sexual abuse and, you know, it was, it was made public. There were lawsuits, but like there was never anything, any accountability, um, and any punishment toward anybody involved, um, which is just like also very typical and also it's just very upsetting when there's just so clearly so much evidence and so many people with, um, experiences that there's no way, you know, he continues to deny it to this day and there's absolutely no way that most of this didn't happen, you know, like it's just, right. it's like, you know, yeah, when there's, yeah. where there's smoke, there's fire. Right. Like, um, and you know, a lot of, there's men now that will talk about their abuses that they experienced at the hands of, of Edgardo and other people in the group, other people in the, not like other young people, but other like management and staff. So there was a whole PR yeah. kind of moment around this in the late eighties when there were or in the nine, early nineties, when these allegations were coming out, in 1991, he went 
they went on Christina, the like talk show that was very famous mm, in Miami. Show Christina, uh huh. <laughs> and it was like one of the former members and his father and then Edgardo like kind of up against each other and it was just really upsetting to see how that was handled because I feel like they it ended up being like a PR success for him and Christina seemed to really like you know basically he was saying like oh it's because of um they just want money like they're doing this just because they want money you know like such a cheap excuse and it feels like she kind of sided with him and then he announces yeah, Christina was kind of whack to be yeah, honest I mean that I don't know that much about her but that makes me feel really crappy about her because at that moment all of the members of the group had resigned basically they all all but one had quit and so at the end of this christina show where it's all about the allegations against him and like really horrific stuff punching like just terrible abusive stuff um he announces the new menudo and those kids are like in the audience these four new kids are in the audience and that was the moment where none of those kids were from puerto rico they were all from the u.s yeah um and so just like i don't know there's just it's like everyone has blood on their hands to a certain degree, you know, like there's just so many places where people um, just like looked the other way and let this go because I think he was influential. He was um, well connected. He was clearly very rich at this point after running this group for so long. So Um, there's a lot more details, but I'm, I won't go into all of it. And so next song we're going to listen to is from this new kind of moment of menu though. You know, they, they'd had this like fall down in the late eighties where they really like weren't doing very well. The success had really gone down the, you know, they went from flying on private jets to like being in a broken down bus, that kind of thing. Um, and then yeah. all the kids quit except one because of the bad conditions and the abuse. And then he recruits this whole new group. And this is a song from that era. This is called dancing, moving, shaking from 1992. Wow, so this one it has entered like the house era, yeah. where, like, deep in like '90s black house. Yeah, very different uh, I know. sound. Very different sound, right? And like I said, we skipped over. There was like a rock sort of like hair metal era that we skipped over. That was a few years long. Mm, um, mm, fascinating. One thing I didn't mention is that um, part of the sort of like downfall from their height of popularity was. Um, they were caught, two of the members were caught with drugs in the Miami airport 
So that was another part of the culture Ooh. of this group. I mean, these are young teens. Like, these are young kids. And there was, you know, other allegations that, like, the managers would, like, bring in coke and drugs for them to do. And so two of the kids Ooh. had drugs on them, and they were drug dogs. And so they got... Um, charged and both they both got kicked out of the group one of them went to jail because he was old enough i think to be charged as an adult and you know of course like edgardo did nothing for them and just like dumped them basically um but it had a really negative reputation a negative yeah negative impact on their reputation because he had had them dancing in like dare songs and doing you know trying to have this image as like these squeaky clean teens right meanwhile yeah, yeah of course you know at the hotel there's all this like sex and drugs and you know on in addition to like the sexual allegations of abuse there was also like just young girl fans who were there and would want to have sex with the boys and one of the boys talked about that they would just the managers be like hey are you ready and like some girl would come in and there'd be just like girls waiting oh my god so just really bad just really bad like all the ways in which these kids could be really just like led astray and set up to fail so um, but yeah, this is the, this is the moment they had a little bit of a comeback in Latin America, like in Venezuela, they had like another moment where they were like selling out. They talked about this a few times. El Poliedro. I don't know if you know that. Um, I do know what Poliedro. Venue. Poliedro is where, um, yeah, it's a big venue in Caracas. It was yeah. like, at least when I was growing up, like the big venue where like, that's where Michael Jackson was going to come play yes. in the nineties before there was like a coup by Hugo Chavez that Got made it. him cancel the tour. Got it. And yeah. I still blame Hugo for menacing <laughs> Michael Jackson back then. So yeah, that comeback was like in 89. So it was a little bit before this song. Yeah, they had that, that comeback. And then I guess maybe Chavez probably ended some of that for them too. So yeah, so this is this is this this kind of second era with these new new menudo kids trying to kind of keep going, but it was not very successful. Um at some point in the 80s, he had sold the company to a Panamanian. He'd sold the brand to a Panamanian company. Maybe he's having financial issues. And so he lost the right to use the name Menudo. So then in the 90s, he rebranded as MDO. And there's like a whole other little trajectory of this group called MDO that had a very similar formula to Menudo. And had like a little bit of success, but not much. Um, 2014 is when Roy Rosello came forward with the allegations of sexual abuse. Um, I think he was maybe the first to like talk publicly about what he experienced. And he was the one that was mm. supposedly brought into the group because Edgardo was in love with him and they had some sort of um, sexually abusive relationship when he was like 13, 14. Um, and so that kind of again blew up the spot and tr brought tried to bring back attention to what had happened um this documentary was released in 2021 and there are a couple of people um in the documentary talking about their experiences of of abuse directly so um there's more people than just roy now talking about it um and then yeah. in in 98 there was like a reunion attempt by older, um, by Menudo members, apart from Edgardo, they were like, screw him, like, you don't get to be part of this, and despite his attempts, and so they, they started reunions. So there have been a couple of different, like, reunion attempts, reunion tours right. um, by the different members of Menudo, and I think that's the feeling that I'm left with, honestly, from this, is like, these men deserve, um, you know, attention, they deserve 
shine they deserve like Mm -hmm. credit for what they did because they were you know they were what made this successful it was their effort it was their it was their talent it was their charisma and they were doing that in the context of a really horrible abusive environment you know so I was happy to see that some of them as adults have been able to perform Mm -hmm. and you know get some um, attention and sort of credit and maybe some money from you know what they did as children apart from this really horrible dude who created a really abusive system and and took all the profit from it at the end like in this like early 90s era they weren't even getting paid a salary they were just getting paid per concert they would get like 250 dollars for every concert they performed in not the reunion but like the kids um and then they were told they would get royalties and they never did so it's just like just financial uh, exploitation 100 percent um yeah so you know we've talked about a little bit like Menudo really opened up space for Latin pop and Latin rock to a certain degree to be a part of the market. And they also set an example for like a Puerto Rican group to have an international stage, you know, to be like big across the world. And now we see that that's like been replicated many times over with big bunny and big bunny (laughs) with bad bunny and other, you know, other Puerto Rican artists, daddy Yankee, like who've gone on to have like a really a world stage from Puerto Rico. So, you know, you might say that Menudo was part of, of, laying the groundwork for that, um, creating an, an appetite for Puerto Rican artists outside of Puerto Rico. Mm-hmm. So this last song we're going to listen to for the main episode is actually a new song that was released in, um, that was released just last month by a new version of Menudo that was restarted by Mario Lopez, who you might know from Say wow. by the Bell. <laughs> Um, or uh, probably many other things if you're younger than 40 (laughs) yeah Mexican-American actor Mario Lopez um, decided to oversee a reboot of Menudo called Menudo A New Beginning they had auditions online and in San Juan and then on March 20th of 2023 the new members performed on Good Morning America and they're um, a bunch of Latinx kids ages 10 to 15 let's take a listen to their single Mi Amore Mi amore, mi amore I'm leaving you alone Leaving you all by yourself You will with me my one and only I guess you never felt the same I think I gotta leave you lonely To make it through the rain And I cried and I cried too many nights And I just can't take the pain And I tried and I tried to treat you right Like I, all I can hope is that they are doing a really good job protecting these kids and creating good contracts and like an environment that they're not going to be exploited. 
Um, I don't have any reason to think that Mario yeah. Lopez is going to exploit them, but it just the history of Menudo, I think that's my main concern is that, yeah, that these, these kids are given an environment where they can, you know, thrive and, and, and be as successful as possible in an industry that's pretty tough for kids. So that's really all I have to say about that. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's incredible. Um, I do see that there's like some like, you know, horns. This it does seem like a little bit of like a musically. Mm -hmm. I'm noticing it's like a little bit of like a Latin mishmash. Mm -hmm. Like it starts off like maybe like mariachi vibes, which mm -hmm. I was like, oh, interesting. They're taking on this like the, maybe trying to ride the wave of mm -hmm. popularity that like the like corridos are having right now, and we're right. gonna speak a little bit about that in an episode coming up. So stay tuned about that. But then it sort of goes into like a more like a Caribbean um, direction, band direction with the horns, which I it's just like oh, it's like you're just like Latin, you know? Mm -hmm. like, yeah, totally. Which and, is yeah. what makes me feel a little bit like. This is less something that is appealing to me, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I do hope the best for these children, my lord. <laughs> I know, um, and yeah, they're singing in English and Spanish, so yeah, it's definitely, I think, yeah. trying to appeal to a different market, not just a Latin market in Latin America. All right, y'all, thank you so, so much for listening, and thank you, Betis, for taking us through uh, this little brief history of Menu. You're welcome, y'all. I'm sorry it was kind of heavy, but. Um, you know, it's an important group. They they definitely made an impact on music and a lot of our childhood. So it's important to know the truth of what was happening and acknowledge the full picture of it. As always, everything that we brought to the show is in our show notes, songs, uh, things that we mentioned. You can find it all there. Make sure you're following us on Instagram and Twitter. And we have a newsletter, too, that goes out every Friday. If you want to sign up for that, all those links are in the show notes. Thank you so much for your editing help, Maite. Y hasta la próxima. See y'all next week. Bye.